purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa anjil farajah. Brothers, sisters, respected viewers, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And thank you for joining us once again in our series, Life, the Islamic Answer. We began a discussion on the meaning of a community of knowledge in our religion to complement the previous discussions that we had on what Islam says about the learner and the teacher. And until now, we established that first, our religion gives a lot of importance to the notion of the collectivity, whether we call that an ummah or any other variant of it. Our religion gives a lot of importance to us recognizing that our roles, our responsibilities in this world and in the next are not limited to the individual dimension, that we will also be held accountable as groups of people together. And for this, we went through a number of verses that established the notion of ummah, of community, of nation, however we translate this. And then within that community, we saw that our religion also says, and this is clearly established in the Holy Quran, that there are communities within the community and that we can belong to them and that there are conditions and distinctions and merits that are specific to each one of these communities within the community. And so our discussion brought us to a number of verses of the Holy Quran that established both of these realities especially the last verse that we saw from Surah At-Tawbah, verse 122, in which we saw the Holy Qur'an specifically talk about a group of people leaving their community to go and become specialists and experts, acquire a much deeper understanding of religion, and then go back to them in order to warn them so that they are aware or that they are more careful now that they understand the dangers, they understand the risks, they understand the teachings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And through those verses, including this last one, we had a number of discussions. I'm not going to repeat them now. Perhaps we will recap uh, a little bit later under this discussion to conclude when we talk about the community, what were the conclusions that we are able to, or we did achieve or, or extract from the verses of the Quran and the narrations. So we were now at the point of moving from these general discussions of establishing the importance of the collective and the community first, and establishing the idea of the community within the community and then establishing specifically the idea of a community of knowledge to now starting to talk about the specifics of that community. So who belongs to that community? What does it take to belong to that community? How is that community going to ensure that it will actually remain a community of knowledge? 
and then perhaps we will not get to that today, but what are some of the attributes, some of the characteristics, and what are the some of the ingredients perhaps required to maintain that community of knowledge? Inshallah, these are some of the questions that we're going to be addressing, and I'm of course start trying to focus on only and only the Islamic teachings first to finish that discussion. And then, as I mentioned, there are perhaps two or three um, additional points that we can make around all of this heading that we will leave till the end because they will not be relying on, they will be complementing and inshallah supporting and providing a lot more detail and a lot more richness. And I'm simply trying to make sure that you know, by following this series, you are touching on all of the main discussions that go on around these topics. So inshallah, we'll complement this discussion that is entirely based on the teachings of our religion with a few more that we can basically draw our inspiration from other literature, whether Islamic or non-Islamic literature, to complement this topic a little bit further in this series. So our first question is now, who else? And the reason I ask the question is because the who or part of the who should be clear. Who is part of the community of knowledge? And the reason I say it should be clear is because we spend so much time talking about first the learner and then the teacher. And so clearly we already understand that there is a relationship that already exists within the Islamic community. We understood its parameters, we understood its conditions, we understood its merits. This relationship between the teacher and the scholar, the, the teacher or the scholar on one hand, and the learner, the person acquiring the knowledge. So this part should already be clear. What we're trying to do now is simply to complement who else is part of this community. The short answer that we're going to give is if we truly want to establish a community of knowledge, then everyone in the community must be part of this community of knowledge. The community of knowledge has to be inclusive of everyone. It cannot be limited to the learner in the strict sense of the learner, the person who is, who is formally on a path to acquire seeking knowledge and the teacher. It cannot be limited to that. And so there are various ways of understanding this. We're going to see, and both are going to be present in the narrations. One way to understand this is to basically say that we must include other roles, other players, other agents in this community. The other way to understand this community of knowledge is to say that we have to expand, and we did that when we were talking about learner, and we did that when we were talking about the teacher or scholar, we have to expand the definition of the learner to include everyone, or the definition of the teacher, as we did when we talked about the teacher, to include much more than the person who is in the strict sense, a formal teacher, an official teacher, or an official learner. That does exist. But either we expand the definition to include others, 
or we have to add other categories. And we're going to see both versions in the hadith. Okay? The first hadith, we went through it quickly earlier in the series. From the Holy Prophet he says, نعم الشيء العلم إذا طلبتموه فأحسنوا في الطلب وكونوا علماء So the Holy Prophet says, knowledge is indeed a great thing. So if you seek it, seek it earnestly and become scholars. But then the Holy Prophet continues, فَإِن لَمْ تَكُونُوا فَتَعَلَّمُوا مِنَ الْعُلَمَاءِ I'm going to finish it in Arabic and then repeat it. فَإِن لَمْ تَكُونُوا فَتَعَلَّمُوا مِنَ الْعُلَمَاءِ فَإِن لَمْ تَعَلَّمُوا مِنَ الْعُلَمَاءِ فَجَالِسُوا فَإِن لَمْ تُجَالِسُوا الْعُلَمَاءِ فَأَحِبُّوا الْعُلَمَاءِ So the Holy Prophet says, Knowledge is indeed a great thing. If you seek it, seek it earnestly and become scholars. If you cannot, then learn from the scholars. If you cannot learn from the scholars, then converse with them, or at least sit in their gatherings, if we want to be literal. If you cannot converse with the scholars, then at least love them. And then the Holy Prophet continues, there is a second part to this hadith. وَإِيَّاكُمْ وَالْأَرْبَعَ أَنْ لَا تَكُونُوا عُلَمَاءَ وَأَنْ لَا تَعَلَّمُوا مِنَ الْعُلَمَاءَ وَأَنْ لَا تُجَالِسُوا الْعُلَمَاءَ وَأَنْ لَا تُحِبُّوا الْعُلَمَاءَ فَيُكِبَّكُمْ فِي النَّارِ So the second part of this hadith, inshallah the first part is still in your mind, second part is, and beware of four things which are not becoming scholars, not learning from scholars, not being in the presence or conversing with scholars, and not loving scholars. For you will be cast into the fire. So this is a very interesting hadith for a number of reasons, some of which we already addressed earlier. So clearly, the main point, or the first point of the hadith, I'm not going to say the main point, the first point of the hadith is urging everyone who follows the teachings of the Holy Prophet to become a scholar, to acquire knowledge and to become a scholar. In other words, the Holy Prophet is saying the default is to become a scholar. So anything less is basically putting a patch on it, is doing enough to get by. And now we're looking at, but what's the minimum acceptable? So he keeps lowering the minimum to allow us in, okay, to allow the maximum of people in. First, knowledge is a great thing. So of course you must seek it. And if you seek it, go all the way to the top. Seek as much of it as possible so that you become scholars. Become the scholar yourself. And this is, by the way, the spirit of our religion. That when you acquire knowledge, when you acquire knowledge, or anything else. Our religion always says, when you do something, do it to perfection. Do it to completion. Go as far as you can in it if it's a good thing. Keep going. Don't stop. Don't limit yourself. Don't accept anything less than complete. So this, of course, is going to apply to something like knowledge. So by default, become a scholar. 
Now, if you really can't become a scholar, then what? Then become the learner. If you really can't become the learner, so every time the Holy Prophet is just lowering the minimum, otherwise that would have been the minimum. Now he gives us one more out. He makes it a little bit easier for us. He says, then at least sit in the gatherings of the scholars. If you can't do that, then at least make sure that you really love them. And so there's that last one would require a little bit of a discussion too on what that could mean. To say, I love knowledge and those who carry it and those who seek it, even though I am not formally one of those people. Okay. So here, in passing, the Holy Prophet mentions a point, we're going to come back to it a little bit later, which is the importance of, be, of acquiring knowledge to the point of becoming a scholar, inshallah, that we talked about at length. The importance of at least becoming a learner, a seeker of knowledge, we talked about at length. And we're going to come back to it again as part of our discussion on the community. Because the Holy Prophet now opened two more categories. To sit in the gatherings of knowledge and of the gatherings of the scholars. So this is already pointing us in a certain direction. Which means the community of knowledge is going to include all these people. And one way to do it, one way to achieve it, is to make sure that there are these gatherings. We're going to see a little bit more detail around these gatherings. But these gatherings are now a staple to sit, to converse, to discuss, to ask questions. You're going to see all of them mentioned. So here it was just to jalisu. So sit with. So what do you do usually when you sit with? You're either listening or you're talking, discussing, asking questions, learning from. You're not officially a scholar. You're not officially a learner. But you're part of that world. You're part of that type of activity going on. This creates a community of knowledge. Because everyone that the Holy Prophet just mentioned should be everyone. One. Because the fifth option, the Holy Prophet said, there's only far, four. And make sure that you don't fall outside of the four. Make sure that you meet one of the four. That you're either a scholar or a learner or someone who sits in their gatherings or someone who loves them. Because the fifth one, the Holy Prophet said, the end of it is hellfire. So it's not an option. So if it's not an option, the Holy Prophet just included everyone in this category. And he did not say these people are gathered around saying the Shahada, reading the Quran, performing the prayer. There was no mention of anything else in our religion here. The only thing that was mentioned in order to avoid hellfire is knowledge. So is this not the definition of a community of knowledge? This is what we're talking about. And we start with this hadith so that we make the point very clear that in the community of knowledge, everyone has to be included. Everyone has a role. And we already saw that in the verses that we covered. But here again, it's very clear and it's broken down in even simpler terms. Everyone is part of this community. You are at least a lover of this community. This is what binds you to this community, that you truly love knowledge. If you can't really just sit with them, at least sit with them. If you can't, 
if you really can't become a learner and if you really can't become a scholar yourself. A quick point here, and I don't want to dwell on this, is the idea of love. This one I leave to you, but it can't just go in passing. When the Holy Prophet says, then at least be a lover of these people, this has to manifest itself somehow. It can't just be that, you know, passively you are completely indifferent to it. If you were asked about it, you wouldn't really have a position on it. That's not really called love. Love has to manifest somehow. So how do you manifest your love for knowledge, for scholars, for learners? How do you manifest that? How do you show that to yourself? How do you show that to God? So that you can tell God, true, I was not a scholar. I was not a learner. I didn't always make the time, the effort, the energy to sit in their gatherings. But I loved them. So what's the proof? What evidence do you have to show that you loved them? So this means there is work that needs to happen in the community. Whether it's money, whether it's volunteering, whether it's some sort of moral support, no matter how it is. That love has to show somehow. So that you say, while I'm not the one who is speaking or delivering the knowledge or receiving the knowledge formally, I am part of this community. I contribute to it. I'm a lover of it. Which means in our religion, there's a lot of space to contribute and be part of without formally playing the roles. And this is exactly what we saw in Surah Al-Tawbah, Ayah 129. We had a whole discussion on this, that not everybody needs to be doing everything. But everybody needs to be doing something to contribute to that. You're part of one community. And in this case, it's a community of knowledge. So what's your contribution? What is your love of knowledge? Okay, so that's the first question. And then again, or that's the first hadith. And this is the question that I should leave you with for every hadith. What should this mean for our community? When we have this hadith that says this, if we want to structure our community around this, if we want to move, evolve, mature our community in this direction, what needs to happen? What do we need to do? I'm not going to give an answer. These are rhetorical, open-ended questions to be discussed, to be thought about later. Okay, so that's the first hadith. The second hadith is not a hadith, it's actually a dua. And I wanted to make a point to recite the dua in its entirety. I find this specially for myself. I have a personal relationship with this dua. I love this dua for a number of reasons. It's a dua that is narrated from Imam al-Mahdi Farajah. And we might take a little bit longer because we're re reciting it slowly. But when you recite it a little bit faster, when you learn it by heart, it goes pretty fast. Now, I would say, I would argue, and I would strongly encourage everyone who can to learn this dua by heart and to recite it at least once a day in your day. So this dua to me is a special dua because of who it comes from. And because of the content, you will see very special messages in it. The overall message of it is beautiful. 
because it links back to notions of unity. It forces us to think beyond ourselves. This is not in every dua. Many of us, when we think of dua, we think myself. I pray for myself. I have needs. When you go back to our ad'iya, you see that there are ad'iya dedicated for yourself, for sure. We all have needs. This is one of the ways to ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to help you with your needs. But there's a lot more going on in the world than just you and your selfish individual needs. And a lot of the ad'iya teach us to think beyond ourselves. And this is one of these ad'iya. The beginning of it certainly has to do with us, but you will already see from the beginning that it's not an individual voice. It's a collective voice. So you're not praying as a person. You're praying as a community. We're all together praying this. And then the dua breaks down, which I'm not going to do now. The point that I'm trying to make is covered in a few words in the dua, and we will only mention some comments about these points. But I will recite the rest of the dua just because of those other points, and I think it's important to know the dua. But you will see that the dua speaks specifically about certain categories in a community or in a nation. And it doesn't just mention them, it gives us some key roles, responsibilities, traits associated with them. The Imam is asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to focus on specific traits for specific roles. This by itself can easily become a program for a community. For a community to sit together and look at this and think about it and strategize and plan for the future and the present when possible. Okay, so we go through the dua. So this is Marwi an Imam al Mahdi Ajallah Farajah. Allahumma rzuqna tawfiq al ta'a. I'll try to read it by sections. Allahumma rzuqna tawfiq al ta'a. Wa bu'dal ma'asiyah. Wa sudqan niyah. Wa irfan al hurmah. Wa akrimna bil huda wal istiqamah. This is the first short part. So the Imam says, Our Lord, grant us the disposition of obedience. Distance from disobedience. Sincerity of intention and knowledge of what is forbidden or sacred and honor us with guidance and steadfastness. And then a second portion. وَسَدِّدْ أَلْسِنَتِنَا بِالصَّوَابِ وَالْحِكْمَةِ وَمْلَأْ قُلُوبَنَا بِالْعِلْمِ وَالْمَعْرِفَةِ وَطَهِّرْ بُطُونَنَا عَنِ الْحَرَامِ وَالشُبْهَةِ وَكْفُفْ أَيْدِيْنَا عَنِ الظُّلْمِ وَالسَّرِقَةِ وَغْضُضْ أَبْصَارَنَا عَنِ الْفُجُورِ وَالْخِيَانَةِ وَاسْدُدْ أَسْمَاعَنَا عَنِ اللَّغْوِ وَالْغِيبَةِ This is the second section. So the Imam says, Rectify our tongues with speaking truth and wisdom. Fill our hearts with knowledge and understanding. Purify our stomachs from forbidden from the forbidden and the doubtful. Restrain our hands from injustice and theft. Lower our gazes from immodesty and betrayal. And close off our ears from frivolity and gossip. And then he starts to talk about the categories of people in a society.
and the one that we are going to be focused on is this first part. We're going to come back to it. وتفضل على علماءنا بالزهد والنصيحة وعلى المتعلمين بالجهد والرغبة وعلى المستمعين بالاتباع والموعظة. So bestow upon our scholars detachment from this world and sincere advice and upon the learners diligence and desire to learn and upon the listeners compliance and admonition or, or listening to good advice وعلى مرضى المسلمين بالشفاء والراحة وعلى موتاهم بالرأفة والرحمة grant healing and comfort to the sick among the Muslims mercy and compassion to their disease, deceased وعلى مشايخنا بالوقار والسكينة وعلى الشباب بالإنابة والتوبة وعلى النساء بالحياء والعفة So dignity and serenity to our elders Repentance and return to God to our youth Modesty and chastity to our women وعلى الأغنياء بالتواضع والسعة وعلى الفقراء بالصبر والقناعة Grant humility and generosity to the rich Patience and contentment to the poor. وعلى الغزاة بالنصر والغلبة. وعلى الأسراء بالخلاص والراحة. And victory and dominance to those who are fighting or who are oppressed. Deliverance and relief to those who are captives. وعلى الأمراء بالعدل والشفقة. وعلى الرعية بالإنصاف وحسن السيرة. Grant justice and compassion to those leading, fairness and good conduct to their subjects. وبارك للحجاج والزوار في الزاد والنفقة وقض ما أوجبت عليهم من الحج والعمرة. Bless the pilgrims and visitors in their provisions and spending. Fulfill what you have mandated upon them of Hajj and Umrah بفضلك ورحمتك يا أرحم الراحمين. By your grace and mercy, O most merciful of the merciful. This dua is mentioned, by the way, it is stated this way. If you go back to the original sources, it's among the ad'iyah that have no title. This is what it's called. Among the ad'iyah of Imam al-Mahdi that have no title. Okay, so Allahumma arzuqna tawfiq al-ta'a. Sometimes they refer to it as dua al-faraj, but we have a few dua al-faraj. And so it might get confusing. In any case, so as I said, I think it should be learned by heart to the extent possible, recited daily with too many meanings to, to talk about here. As I said, I think uh, there's an overall message that's beautiful. The tone pushes us to think beyond ourselves. It talks about very specific issues that all of them need addressing and there's responsibilities associated with that. And then... You know, people are always asking, how do I connect better? How can I make sure that the imam is more present in my life? These are ways to have the imam present in your life. You wake up in the morning, you remember to recite this dua. The imam is present in your heart and in your mind the moment you open your eyes or last thing before you go to sleep or after your prayers or during them in your qunut. It's not only the content of this dua, but knowing that this dua comes from your imam. You can recite it with the intention that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings you closer to the imam, makes the imam happier 
knowing that you are reciting his dua, the dua that he has taught to be recited. You're choosing this dua specifically for this reason, with this intent. Right? So all of this brings you closer to the imam. We go back to the part now that we wanted to focus on quickly. We're talking about the community and who belongs to the community. So in the previous hadith from the Holy Prophet the Holy Prophet gave us a few categories. He made it easier. Right? He said there's a scholar, teacher, there's the learner, there's the one who sits in the gatherings, which means regularly sitting, attending their gatherings, and then there is the one who loves them. In this dua, if you noticed, there's only three categories. This dua says, وَتَفَضَّلْ عَلَىٰ عُلَمَائِنَا بِالزُّهْدِ وَالنَّصِيحَةِ So there's ulama'ina. وَعَلَى الْمُتَعَلِّمِينَ بِالْجُهْدِ وَالرَّغْبَةِ وَعَلَى الْمُسْتَمِعِينَ بِالْإِتِّبَاعِ وَالْمَوْعِضَةِ And he gave uh, traits or responsibilities to each, asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant each of these categories those specific traits. Ulama, the scholars, to become more detached from this world and to be sincere. They fully give their knowledge, they fully give their advice in the best way that they can and to be detached from this world. And we talked about all of this at length when we talked about scholars and teachers. And then he talks about the learners. And we saw the hadith that say, knowledge is not an easy thing to learn. If you want to go to the bottom of it, it's constant struggle. It takes a long time. It takes patience and perseverance and hard work. This is what the Imam is asking for. So there is a struggle. Grant them the ability to do the hard work, to face that struggle. And to constantly have that fire, the desire to learn. Keep that in them. The raghba, the desire to keep seeking knowledge and learning. These are two categories. Great. And then there's a third. وَعَلَى الْمُسْتَمِعِينَ And then there are the listeners. The listeners to knowledge. The listeners to what the scholars are sharing with their students. These are not officially scholars. These are not officially learners. There are other people in the community. What do they do? They listen. They listen in. They grab what they can. They acquire what they can. They're not official learners. They're not, in the strict sense, seekers of knowledge. But they are constantly in a state of listening. And there are no other categories mentioned. Which again brings us to the same notion. Your community of knowledge just got a little bit more restricted. Because in the previous hadith, we also had the lovers. We had the listeners. We had those who sit in. Here the lovers are not mentioned. The lovers of knowledge, the lovers of the seekers, the lovers of the granters of knowledge. Here they're not mentioned. So I would say this one is a higher standard to achieve. Because it means that we have to ensure that everyone in our community falls into one of these three categories. Scholar, difficult. Teacher, uh, uh, learner. And learner is not always easy either. It requires a commitment and a long time and the dua itself proves it. And then you have the listeners. So we have to ensure that everyone at least falls in this third category. How do we do that? Once again, 
gatherings. And inshallah, we're going to talk about them. But we have to think about this as a community. And that's why we're saying either we expand the definition of the learner to include everyone who might be learning even though they are not in the strict official sense a learner. They include, it includes everyone. Or we allow a little bit of space to include a few other categories. In this case, one more category was added. Previous hadith, we have two categories added. Those who sit in and those who love. Here, those who love are not an option. And in truth, there's a teaching in this, which means that everyone has to make an effort to fall in this category. And this is the point we're trying to get at. No one can decide for you if you're going to be a listener or someone who sits in in these gatherings. You have to decide for yourself. And we talked about this point earlier. When we talked about the learner, we said in our religion, our religion, unfortunately, many of us misunderstand this. We think it gives us the option of learning or not learning our religion. You can stay indifferent. You cannot learn your religion and be okay. But when you go through the ahadith, you see this is not an option. And we went through too many ahadith from Ahlul Bayt, from the Holy Prophet that say this is not an option. To not learn, especially the ahadith perhaps that were harsher in tone. We had some ahadith about Ar-Rajul and we'll see one of them. About the man. Okay, that's in general. But we, have, we had specific ahadith about the youth. If you'll remember from Imam al-Baqir, Imam al-Sadiq, he says, if, if you bring me the youth of the Shia specifically, he says, and you tell me they are not learning religion, they're not studying religion, in one hadith, for instance, he says, right? I will discipline them, those youth who are not learning religion. I leave it to you to think, how will the Imam discipline them? The Imam is very clear. It's a very clear, there's no doubt about it. He will use whatever means necessary to discipline them so that they become people who study religion in their youth. This is part of growing up. You also learn your religion. After that, I can't force you. But if you want to be a strict adherent to this religion, you have to leave time on a regular basis, and we're going to talk about that, out of your schedule for learning religion. And learning religion has to be understood as learning. It's one thing to learn. Yes, in our religion you have to pray, you have to fast, you have to recite the Qur'an. This you have to do. Don't call your recitation of the Qur'an learning your religion. These are two different things. It should be a learning context. You have to feel like you are a learner. It has to be part of your regular schedule. So we have to ensure that this is happening. And then at least to be looking from the outside to be in a constant state of, if I can't be an official learner, at least to be in a state that people would refer to me as mustama'ah. Someone who listens in on all of this discussion and all of this teaching going on. At least I'm in a state of constant listening. And my general attitude has to be وَعَلَى الْمُسْتَمِعِينَ بِالْإِتِّبَاعِ so when I hear, I obey, I follow, I'm compliant with what I hear. And and I accept advice. And this is what the Quran says. Those who when they hear speech, they choose that which is the best of it. 
the best version of it. They go and they do that. Okay, so inshallah, all of that is clear. So again, if we wanted to bring this back to our own community, the open-ended question would be, what needs to happen so that we move towards becoming a community of knowledge? Where everyone in the community is falling into these categories, and there are only three of them here. There has to be something from within. People have to be aware of this and then move towards it. And there has to be something done from outside of the people to enable, to facilitate, to make this possible so that people can be part of this community of knowledge. So these were a couple of hadith, a couple of passages, inshallah, that establish these points. The bottom line we're trying to make here is, therefore, everyone in the community has to be part of this community of knowledge for it to work. And there's no option. There's no alternative that is given to us. Now, combined with this, and you're going to see in the hadith, of course, a little bit of an overlap with what we just covered, that everyone has to be part of it. But the main notion that you will often see in the ahadith is now the how. We talked about the who, now how. The main approach, the main approach listed in our ahadith is gatherings around knowledge. However these happen, there are people getting together. And I would add, it's difficult to say getting together virtually. It's not really getting together. There's something that will always be missing. There will always be something missing that watching on a screen versus being there in person. It will never be the same experience. But between not attending at all, not being exposed at all to the knowledge, and at least accessing it virtually, of course access it virtually. If it's between virtual and nothing, then of course virtual. But if you have the choice between virtual and in presence, of course in presence. And there's an insistence on this, and we talked about it as well. We talked about the importance of learning in person from people, as opposed to, for instance, learning from lectures, learning from books. It's important to learn from books, but there's something else you get in person that you can't get in any way else. And just the gathering, sometimes the relationship, you're not necessarily meeting a teacher. You're meeting someone else, but you're discussing religious issues. You're debating them. You're learning from each other. You're pushing your thinking on them. In the seminaries, they call this the mubahatha. You're at similar levels. It's not, none of you officially has you know, the role of a teacher over anyone else. It's not that type of relationship. But you get together to discuss the things that supposedly you all learned. Right? You go through the lessons, then you meet. Mabahatha is usually on a daily basis. You meet, and I go over what I covered with you in my own way, in my own words, and maybe I ask you the questions I should be asking the teacher, but I have to ask them to you. To see, but did you understand this? What did you understand from this? Don't you have this objection? And then they answer you, and you discuss and debate. This is exactly what you see from the ahadith. This is the, the tone of the ahadith that you get. This doesn't come out of nothing, this model that is taken, the approach that you have in the religious seminaries where people learn. There are 
too great. The, the numbers of those who attend the lessons are too great for a teacher, a scholar, to be able to answer everyone's questions. And if you do not do this, it means you're never going to be able to repeat the knowledge in your own words, to truly internalize it. So this forces you to sit and see, but how much did you really understand? Sometimes the person who sits here behind the mic, behind the delivering the lecture, they make it look easy. Did you really capture the logic? Are you able to repeat the arguments? Do you know the main points? Can you get there from the starting point to the end? That requires practice. And the only way to do that is to express it and externalize it. So it requires a discussion. And then when you discuss, you see maybe it's not as clear as I thought it is in my mind. It's one thing to have it, to carry the knowledge in your mind. It's another to express it to others. And we need people who know how to express what they believe to others. And this forces that. That everyone has a chance in some sort of forum, you have to create that for yourself, to say out loud the things that you believe in, to make sure that you know how to say them, to express them, to argue them with their points, with their proofs, in a way that's convincing to you and convincing to others. So in any case, we go back to the few hadith. So we're going to have a couple of subheadings under this notion of how, and the answer is gatherings, so we're going to start with the general and go to more specific, but as I said, there's a lot of overlap between these ahadith. Anasadiq an Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa he says, so there's a couple of these ahadith that we have gone through in the past. So these are, I'm not going to spend time on the aspects that we've already covered. So the Holy Prophet would have said, Uffin li rajulin. لا يفرغ نفسه في كل جمعة لأمر دينه فيتعاهده ويسأل عن دينه وفي رواية أخرى لكل مسلم وأفن لكل مسلم So the Imam is saying the Holy Prophet said Woe to the man or woe to the Muslim Clearly the Holy Prophet is talking about everyone Woe to the man who does not free himself up. And here, depending on the harakat, which we do not have, who does not free himself up every Friday or every week. So the Holy Prophet is either referring to a specific day in the week, but both mean the same thing. Once a week. The person who does not free themselves at least once a week. The Holy Prophet saying, woe to that person for the affairs of his religion, so that he visits it with diligence and asks about his religion. So this is at the individual level. This is the awareness. This means that this is happening. Every person is dedicating some time, some effort out of their schedule, at least on a weekly basis. And we talked at length about time management in our religion earlier in the series. And this was one of the starting points. We said this can't exist in a vacuum. We have to organize our week. We have to organize our days so that we carve out time so that it does not become an excuse that I do not have time to learn. You have to create time to learn. Okay, so this part, inshallah, is clear. I don't want to talk about all of the sub-points related to this. But I would say here, 
the idea of a weekly program as a minimum because this person is on right, right on the edge. Otherwise, the Holy Prophet would not be saying, Uffin, you know, woe to this man. The Holy Prophet is almost going to be saying, you know, damned be this person, cursed be this person. It's one step before that. So this is the minimum that the Holy, the Holy Prophet is saying, will he not even dedicate a time once a week? That's what he's saying. He's not saying this is, you know, the average and that's acceptable. He's saying this is a strict minimum. That the man dedicates a portion once a week of their day for visiting their religion and asking questions and learning about it. So again, this has to become, when we have Islamic centers, mosques, Husayniyat, this is something we have to keep in mind. There has to be some sort of learning taking place, at least on a weekly basis. This is the bare minimum. And this allows us to say as a community, well, at least we've provided some sort of facility for this. As a community, we're working together and we can at least check off this box. That people can at least attend once a week to acquire knowledge. And I already made this point, I will repeat. It's a different thing. We all know the difference between attending to acquire knowledge and doing other activities. If I attend to recite the Holy Quran, if I attend to recite a dua, if I attend to recite a ziyara, this is not necessarily acquiring knowledge. This is a different activity. And both are necessary and both are important. But they are not necessarily the same. If my recitation of the Quran is perhaps accompanied with some sort of learning, great, now I'm getting both. But if it's only reciting the Quran to recite the Quran, if it's only reciting the ziyarah to recite the ziyarah, reciting the dua to recite the dua, as important and spiritually beneficial as that is, that's not learning. No learning is taking place here. This would not meet the minimum that the Holy Prophet is talking about, where you are dedicating time of your week to learn the affairs of your religion. This is not met here. Okay, so we have to be clear about this. And the reason I say centers, it doesn't have to be centers. The reason I say centers is because not everyone knows where to look, where to start, what to do. You're at least facilitating that for them. It doesn't need to be the centers. People are responsible for this by themselves on their own. The Holy Prophet is not saying someone makes this available to you. He says, go and seek it out. Carve out time of your week for this activity. Doesn't matter how you do it, so long as it's happening. But we add the practical aspect to it and we would say, well, of course, it would be the great way to do this, the most practical way to do this. And we're going to see with the other ahadith, because this is not contained in this hadith, the idea of gathering around knowledge. In this one, there's no mention of gathering. Make sure, but when we combine them together, that's what we're trying to do, to create the theory. You combine these small teachings together, and then you get the full picture. In this one, we're simply told, once a week you have to acquire knowledge about your religion, period. 
But the other ahadith are going to tell us you must meet with other people who are believers and discuss, gather around knowledge. The gathering is around knowledge. That's the main point of your gathering. Why don't we combine these together? And where should we be gathering? Yes, we can gather in houses, for sure, no issue. And we bless our houses and our families with these religious gatherings, beautiful. But there are places dedicated for this. And this makes it a lot easier and removes a lot of the barriers. Okay, so this becomes, practically speaking, a lot easier to do. And again, as we said, learning has to be the priority here in order to check this off. Other activities are important, necessary, but they are not learning. And this hadith is talking about learning specifically. Next hadith. And these ahadith kind of go together very quickly from the Holy Prophet ﷺ. He says, تَذَاكَرُوا وَتَلَاقَوْا وَتَحَدَّثُوا فَإِنَّ الْحَدِيثَ جَلَاءَ إِنَّ الْقُلُوبَ لَتَرِينُ كَمَا يَرِينُ السَّيْفِ وَجَلَاءُهَا الْحَدِيثِ So the Holy Prophet says, and then the second hadith is very close to it, remind each other, the Holy Prophet says, تَذَاكَرُوا so I mention things to you that remind you, and you mention things to me that remind me. That's tadakur. It's reciprocal. Okay? Tadakaru. Talaqaw. So meet each other. Watahaddathu. And talk with each other or discuss with each other. For discussion is a cleansing of the hearts. Hearts get sullied or rusty. The Holy Prophet says, as the swords get rusty, they're polishing is through discussion. So this is the image that the Holy Prophet uses that is very present to the people who are living in his time. He says, just as your swords, the metal of your swords get rusted and you have to polish it, remove that rust, the hearts get sullied or rusted. And that which polishes them is this discussion, the gatherings and this, this discussion. The next hadith related to this one from the Holy Prophet ﷺ, he says, In Allah Azza wa Jal Yaqul, Tadakuru al-ilm bayna ibadi mimma tahya alayhi al-qulubu al-maytah, idhan tahaw fihi ila amri. So the Holy Prophet ﷺ says, The collective remembrance of knowledge between my servants. So it's not that you're sitting all alone at home doing your your mudakara in allah azza wa jal yaqul tadakurul ilm bayna ibadi there are different people who are getting together to do a remembrance of knowledge okay so anything falls under this it could be you sit to learn you sit to remind each other you sit to discuss it to go further in it all of that is a gathering around knowledge so the collective remembrance of knowledge between my servants brings the dead hearts to life so long as they end up at my affair. So long as the discussion brings back to truth, brings back to God in some way, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says this is bringing their hearts back to life. This revives the hearts. Not biologically speaking, of course, spiritually speaking. 
So again, in both ahadith, the first hadith, tadakaru, talaqaw, tahaddathu, the whole discussion, these instructions, these commandments are at the collective level. And none of these are things that any of us can do by themselves. To say, yes, I am doing as per the instructions given to me. You can only do this, just like we said when we talked, for instance, about Surah Al-Asr. When it says, بالصبر, You can't do that to yourself. You have to have someone else that you do this to, and they do it to you. You urge them, and you remind them, and they urge you, and remind you, and encourage you. This can't happen individually, which takes out the individual dimension completely out, unless you have no option in our religion. In any case. So in both ahadith, very clearly, there is a collective dimension. All of the benefits mentioned in both of the ahadith, I'm not going to go through them. I think they're clear enough. They don't require any more discussion. It brings the hearts back to life. It cleanses the hearts. The hearts get sullied, so on and so forth. I think we all understand many of the meanings related to all of this. And the way to deal with all of this is basically to gather with other like-minded individuals, people who have your beliefs, and you gather and discuss knowledge. However that discussion happens, it's under that general heading, that the gathering is taking place around knowledge. And of course, there's that additional condition that is mentioned in this hadith, that the discussion, so long as it leads back to my affair, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, it brings back to me. And I would say, for people who are believers, this should be a very easy condition to meet. This is a very, very broad, very flexible condition that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is putting in place. Any gathering can become a gathering where knowledge is discussed. It becomes a gathering of knowledge if it brings back to the affair of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The next hadith, and maybe I'll, I'll stop after this. The next hadith from the Holy Prophet he says, العلم خزائن ومفاتحه السؤال فاسألوا يرحمكم الله So first part of the hadith The Holy Prophet says Knowledge is treasures or treasure coffers Both work خزائن It's keys The keys to these coffers or the keys to these treasures to access them It's keys are questions so ask questions, may God have mercy on you. فَإِنَّهُ If you ask questions, فَإِنَّهُ يُؤْجَرُ أَرْبَعَةِ السَّائِلْ وَالْمُعَلِّمْ وَالْمُسْتَمِعْ وَالْمُحِبْ لَهُمْ So the Holy Prophet says, knowledge is treasuries, its keys are questions, so ask questions, may God have mercy on you for asking questions. For when you ask, there are four who are rewarded every time you ask a question. The one who asks, the one who teaches or answers, the one listening, and the one who loves them. The same exact categories as we saw earlier in another hadith. There's the one who is teaching, there's the one who is receiving the knowledge, and then there's someone outside of that relationship, they're listening in. They get thawab for listening. 
for being a mustami' وعلى المستمعين بالاتباع والموعظة the dua but again the holy prophet adds makes it flexible and easy the flexibility is والمحب لهم you may be there witnessing this feeling love in your heart for this that there are people who ask and there are people who answer and there is knowledge and there is a gathering around knowledge and you love this or you may not even be there this might have happened a thousand years ago but it's part of your values and your beliefs and the importance you give to knowledge and knowledge communities as Imam Ali السلام, explained in many of his ahadith and we went through all of this earlier the idea of how people gather around common beliefs and common knowledge earlier in the series there's a lot more but I think a lot of it we covered earlier I don't want to spend too much time on this the importance of asking questions knowing how to ask questions that the the mere fact of asking sincere questions is actually something that is spiritually benefit because it means that you're crushing on your ego right and so this destroys arrogance in our souls because you go to someone for more knowledge anyways so we had discussed all of that the sincerity in asking the sincerity in answering we dedicated a whole a number of lectures i think on the whole topic of asking questions we said that asking questions in the words of imam ali salam is an art by itself he says learn to ask questions that's just as you learn how to give speeches and so on and so forth and then the the link with the communities once again what does this mean for our community this importance of asking questions these are people clearly who are gathering in a setting of knowledge so that they can ask questions and receive answers and there are people asking there are people answering and there are people listening in and there are people who love this so once again brings us back to our centers and this has to be a part of the regular programming in our centers that this is something that is available this is something that is not once in a blue moon maybe in passing i'll mention this very quickly and then we we move on maybe i'll add one more hadith today to finish off this i'll mention this point very quickly in passing it's always a, a strange uh, phenomenon or occurrence in our communities when uh, a scholar comes from elsewhere and then people gather to ask questions sometimes the questions are perfectly valid the scholar has a perf specific mission that they perform they have specific roles they play they have an understanding of the world they have an understanding of organizations they are coming with a specific message all of that of course it would be valid that's exactly what you want and sometimes clearly they are of a much superior rank in knowledge and spirituality you want to benefit from that but sometimes when you look at the questions and the you know the main topic the main theme of discussion when people for instance they wait two three four years to meet a scholar who is visiting finally to ask a question about wudu for instance or how to perform a prayer or how to or how to which we would consider to be the basics of religion 
The issue is not in asking the question. You need to ask the question. It's for this person asking the question, where were you all, those, all this time? Why did you wake up now? And why this question? This reflects very poorly on a community. If this scholar comes to a community and the question that he receives is about, you know, can I perform my wudu this way? It says a lot about the state of this community. You know, this is a community where we really have to work very hard. This is a message going back. This is a community where we work really hard to, you know, basically start from scratch and teach them wudu. This is what I got back from that community. So if people have questions, this is where there has to be a lot more work done. Provide the opportunity for the questions to be asked, to be addressed, so that these types of things don't happen. And then for the visiting scholar, then it becomes something a little bit more worthwhile. Right? We're talking about things that are worth asking this specific visitor scholar or that one, based on their role, their specialty, their mission, their message, the letters they're bringing, the letters they can take back, and so on and so forth. And this, so the reason I mention it is that when you see the tone in which this happens in the narrations, and I just gave one example, but there are many, the tone seems to be that gather around and ask questions and discuss knowledge. Unfortunately, this is not always happening in the communities. What happens instead is you wait a couple of years until there's a visiting scholar who will come and then you ask a couple of questions that you could have asked, you know, a few hundred people in your community could have answered these questions. And if they're questions of necessity, if you have issues and doubts about how you perform your wudu or how you perform your prayer or your fast, you need to be asking those questions now, not wait for three years until a scholar comes from the outside to visit, right? So, in any case, maybe I'll, I'll as I said, I'll finish with this last uh, hadith and it'll force me to keep it short because there's too much to discuss here and it's a hadith we already spend a fair amount of time on even though it deserves a lot more, but we spent a lot of time on this, so this is a reminder and really to look at it specifically from this lens once again, the lens of the community. And once again, you're going to see the categories, and this time I would say this is definitely the harshest of the standards. And for those who have regularly attended my lectures, you know that I have said this repeatedly, having spent a lot of time studying the hadith of the imams and how they talk about the same theme, the same topic, in slightly different ways. And there are ways to harmonize all of this. But there are always little nuances. And we should be thinking and studying why are there nuances. The same topic is addressed by Imam Al-Kadhim slightly differently than, for instance, Imam Al-Hasan or Imam Ali salam or the Holy Prophet. Why? Why these nuances? Okay, so in that same spirit, let's look at this very, very famous passage from Imam Ali salam, since we're talking about this theme, who participates in a community of knowledge and is there a luxury that we have in not participating in these communities of knowledge? Is that an alternative? Is that acceptable as an option or not? So 
we go back to the short sayings of Imam Ali salam. This is a very famous one, number 147, the short sayings of Imam Ali and Nahj al where Kumail ibn Ziyad says, Imam Ali salam took me by the hand, أَخَذَ بِيَدِي أَمِيرُ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ Ali ibn Abi Talib salam فَأَخْرَجَنِي إِلَى الْجِبَّانِ فَلَمَّا أَصْحَرَ تَنَفَّسَ الصَّعَدَاءِ ثُمَّ قَالْ يَا كُمَيْلَ بْنَ زِيَادِ إِنَّ هَذِهِ الْقُلُوبِ أَوْعِيَهِ فَخَيْرُهَا أَوْعَاهَا فَاحْفَظْ عَنِّي مَا أَقُولُ لَكَ So Kumail, the companion of Imam Ali salam says, The Imam took me by the hand, brought me outside to the cemetery until we were in the middle of the desert. Then he sighed. Then he said, O Kumail, these hearts are containers. The best of them are the ones which are the best of preservers. And so this can have two meanings, right? The ones that can contain the most and the ones that can preserve the best, which might imply that the Imam also is telling him, you don't share this freely, right? I want you to be a container that preserves it well, right? Hifth can have, awaha is the best seal over that knowledge. And or the ones that contain the most. Both, both meanings are uh, definitely po- uh, possible here. So the best of them are the ones that preserve its content the most or the preserve the most content. Therefore, learn what I say to you or preserve what I say to you. Okay? And obviously, as we said when we talked about this, Kumail did, and here we are today, 14 centuries later, reading the same words. And then the Imam said these famous words, Nasu Tarata. People are three, which means people are can only fall in one of three categories, one of three types. Fa'alimun Rabbani wa muta'allimun ala sabili najat wa hamajun ar'a' yan'iquna ma'a kulli na'iq wa yamiluna ma'a kulli rih atba'u kulli na'iq or يَنْعِقُونَ مَعَ كُلِّ نَاعِقْ يَمِيلُونَ مَعَ كُلِّ رِيحْ لَمْ يَسْتَضِيءُوا بِنُورِ الْعِلْمِ وَلَمْ يَلْجَأُوا إِلَىٰ رُكْنٍ وَثِيقٍ So people are of three kinds, he says, or three types. The divine scholar, the learner or the seeker of knowledge who is on the way to deliverance or on the way of deliverance and الْحَمَجٌ رَعَاءٌ And we spent a lot of time explaining what this means. We can say the common rot or scum. And I'm going to explain that in a second. The Imam is using very specific terminology. The ones who run after every caller. But he doesn't use caller, the Imam. He says, أَتْبَاعُ كُلِّ نَاعِق Na'iq is the sound that is produced either by the crow or the sheep. Okay, The ones who follow the call of every crow or the call of every sheep. Okay? And bend in the direction of every wind. Every wind that comes, they lean in that direction. They did not borrow light from the brightness of knowledge. That's the criteria. And they do not seek refuge to or through any reliable support or corner. Both work. Somewhere where you can hide. Somewhere where you can seek shelter, somewhere where you can, you know, find support. He says they did not. They did not go seek refuge in a solid, 
place that can truly safeguard them because they don't have the knowledge. The knowledge would be that place. The hadith, as you will remember, is much longer, right? But we're going to stop here. And the hadith, just a very, very quickly, a few remarks. I'm not going to go through some of the points we covered earlier. There's a lot more we hadn't covered. The imam is taking him. There's a whole scene that the imam is putting in place. Just the fact that the imam brings him to the cemetery is requires a study on our part. Why would the imam bring Kumaira bin Ziyad to a cemetery? Okay, and they, some of our scholars have said that there is meaning. This is a symbol. It's as, as though the imam is telling him those who are dead hear better what I say than those who are alive. So I'm talking to those who really hear me. Okay, and perhaps it was a specific cemetery where some of his companions had passed away. And the fact that the imam sighs means that the imam is not in a happy state. The imam is frustrated or the imam is depressed, sad. And that's why he is sighing in this way. When Kumail goes out of his way to mention that, it means that this is significant. There's something going on that makes the imam be in this state. Okay, so this is a general context. And Kumail says, he took me by the hand and led me all the way there. And then we went, when we were in the middle of the desert, he said those things. Okay, so that's the general context. It requires more study. We leave it perhaps to look at more at another time. As we said, he tells him, so I'm going to tell you things and these hearts, the best of these hearts are the ones that are the best containers, the ones that can carry the most knowledge or that can preserve that knowledge the best. Okay, and then he tells him, Ehfav, so it could mean both things, you know, memorize and learn or, you know, preserve and don't let anyone get to it. Just like you would preserve a treasure or something I leave with you and I don't want people to get to it. That's the, the other meaning of Hefb, right? It's not necessarily that you learn it by heart. The Imam is almost telling him, I'm leaving a treasure with you. And the fact that the Imam goes back to talking about money for the rest of it, and then he explains all the rest. This is part of the image too, in any case. Then the Imam goes into the three categories of people, and this is what we wanted to get to. So the three categories of people that the Imam gives, the Imam here is not talking about, you know, you can uh, specifically talk about Muslims and within that community. He just divided all humanity into these three types. And this is why I say, you know, anyone who studies closely the words of Imam Ali salam, you will always notice that they are usually, if I want to use a common term, I would say they are always the harshest. Or they are always the hardest standard. The highest standard to meet is always the standard of Imam Ali salam. And then when you go to the hadith of Ahl al-Bayt, the other Imams, usually you will find a lot more leniency. The imam will tell you, you know, split your time in three. Then you have other ahadith from other imams that say, split your time into four or five. Right? Imam Ali is always at a higher standard. And he expects, you want to be a follower of the imams? It's one thing. You want to be a follower of Imam Ali? It's another. The standard is very high. And so he doesn't leave a lot of flexibility. In fact, usually he leaves none. Truth, 100% truth. There's no flexibility, no leniency. So Imam Ali says, all people fall in three categories. 
One, they are a divine scholar, alim rabbani. And we said the only true meaning for this would be an infallible. You're a prophet, you're an imam, that's alim rabbani. Your knowledge is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If this applies, and we didn't say it doesn't apply, but if this applies to anyone else, we would say that it is very hard and a very high standard and good luck. And I would say, I would say for me, for sure, none of us would be falling in this category with that much ease. This is not a given category for people to fall into, to be a alam rabbani. So that category is out. And there are two categories for people to fall into. So there's alam rabbani. I'm going to leave the second one. This is where we're hoping to sneak in. So I'm going to leave it till the end. And then, hamajun ra'a. So before we get into the description the Imam gives, because he gives us criteria, the Imam knows the prince of eloquence. The Imam knows when he gives a word and it requires an explanation, he explains it. When it doesn't, he doesn't. If he just put all of humanity in this category, this requires a bit of an explanation. So he's going to give us a description of this category. First, he calls this category Hamajun Ra'a. So what's Hamajun Ra'a? Hamaj and Ra'a, both of the words are clearly very negative. And Hamaj is usually a term that is used to talk about either very tiny insects that are like, they say, like mosquitoes or flies that you can barely see, or anything that becomes chaotic and dispersed. And if it's applied to people, it may mean masses that are barbaric and savage. And both terms can be used for both, by the way. But usually ra'a is focused more on rot and scum. Which means what literally? So you look at something, like wood for instance, and the part of it that is rotting. Or if you, what's scum? Literally, what is scum? Scum is when you look at the surface of the water and you see debris. You see the filth and foam floating on the water. You, could, you would want to remove it if you want to clear the water to drink, for instance. Right? This is the literal meaning of scum. What is scum? Scum is the filth that floats over water that includes the froth. Okay, The foam and froth on water. This is the literal meaning of scum. This is the word the imam is using in Arabic. This is ra'a. The imam is describing both of these, using both of these words to describe the rest. He says people are either a divine scholar or a learner. As we said, we keep it till the end. Or a learner. Or hamajun ra'a. All of humanity, he just put it here. Hamajun ra'a. And then he gives you the description. And basically, the imam is saying, go ahead, challenge me. This is how I'm going to describe them. Are they not hamajun ra'a or are they? Atba'u kulli na'iq. They are followers of every caller. And he doesn't say caller, he says na'iq. Na'iq is, as we said, the sound of the crow, and that's an image. The crow, especially for Arabs. The darkness, the black, it's a bird, and so on and so forth. 
the followers of every crow or the, the call of every crow or the call of every sheep. Today we say sheeple. What are sheeple? Would they not be people who follow every call for the sheep? The Imam says the majority of people fall in this category. They're followers. One more description he gives. Atba'u kulli na'iq. Yamiluna ma'a kulli rih. They bend in the direction of every wind. Today the trend is to go this way. Today the trend is to buy that. Today the trend is to wear this. Today the trend is to drive that. To eat this way, to sit this way, to talk this way, to believe in this. This is what the Imam is talking about. Would this be a description of the majority of people or not? That's category two. Three, why are they like this? He brings it back to knowledge. لَمْ يَسْتَضِيءُوا بِنُورِ الْعِلْمِ They did not take a bit of light from the light of knowledge. They lack knowledge. So if someone carries knowledge, or they think they carry knowledge, or people think they carry knowledge, but this is how they behave, then by the definition of Imam Ali السلام, this is not knowledge. Because this is the reason why you're bending every which way and you're following every call. That you're unable to make up your own mind and follow the truth and not be of those who call every, are going to follow the call of every sheep or every crow, as he says. And then finally, وَلَمْ يَلْجَأُوا إِلَىٰ رُكْنٍ At a time when you need to seek shelter, they don't know how to seek shelter. This is a, Again, an image borrowed from someone who knows how to live in a desert, for instance. Suddenly in the desert you're traveling, you need to be able to find yourself a shelter in a storm. You can't just stay in the middle. You need to be able to find yourself somewhere to seek refuge. But you need to know how to do that. These people can't. In times of crisis, in times of danger, when there are risks, they don't know the risks, they don't know the danger, and they wouldn't know what to do. Nor do they have any light in order to see the road, because they did not borrow light from the light of knowledge, he said. They don't carry a lantern. They don't have a piece of fire they have with them. Walking in complete darkness. So the idea that they are hamajun ra'a is not to insult them. The Imam is saying they are insignificant. Just like the froth on water, just like the tiny insects, if you were to, f to blow on them, you can push them every which way. The current, the waves, they move that froth every which way. And at the end, anyone who looks at these, you wouldn't give any value to this. You wouldn't say, you know, this is worth anything. The froth on top of the water which the Qur'an, by the way, uses in some of its verses. وَأَمَّا الزَّبَدُ Right? Zabad in the Qur'an is this. It's the froth on the water. And this is how it talks about those who do things that are significant and the rest. Those who try and they do mischief and evil and wrongdoing. The Qur'an says at the end, all of that is just froth. All of that will go away. Don't worry. Okay? And so here... Imam Ali is using this image to say these people become insignificant. 
You are either a seeker of knowledge or you are a carrier of true knowledge or you are insignificant. You are moved around just like the froth, just like a tiny insect. But he uses terminology that can be applied to people, that could be applied to insects and animals, and that can be applied to these objects to give you this rich meaning. But the significance of it is that it's without any value. There is no significance to this reality. Anyone would be happy to get rid of it, and you can see that it doesn't have any control over what it's doing. And he's saying the majority of people put themselves in this category. And it wouldn't take a lot for them to fall in the second category, which is Alimun Rabbani wa Muta'allimun ala Sabili Najat. Muta'allim is easy, the seeker of knowledge, a learner, walking on a path that leads to deliverance. Walking on a path, it's not like you're learning everything and anything. You are learning, and this learning is a path that is leading to deliverance, to being rescued. That's what it, it literally means. Muta'allim ala sabili najat. There's a rescue at the end of this. There's a saving, a deliverance that will happen if you stay on this road where you are learning. So there's the alam al-Rabbani, and there's hamajun ra'a, and therefore our only option becomes having to become, if this description of the imam is something we believe in, we have to become the learner on the path of deliverance. We have no other option. And this one might be harsher as a standard, but the imam here is not talking to the masses. The imam is specifically taking Kumail, his closest of close companions, outside where no one hears what they're discussing. And he tells him, do not repeat this to everyone. Make sure that you preserve this knowledge that I'm giving you. This is special knowledge. This is not knowledge that I just share openly with all. They won't get this. So we have to ask ourselves the same questions. If I were with Imam Ali al salam would he share this knowledge with me? When the Imam tells Kumail, He's basically telling Kumail that you have one of these hearts. And that's why I'm giving you this knowledge. You are going to learn this and preserve it and apply it. And you will know how to pass it on. So today I have to, 14 centuries later, say where do I fit in all of this? How do I become a true follower of Imam Ali alayhi salam if this is how he sees the world and how he shares the world with his close companions? Those who want to be followers of Ali. I always say, this is a different criteria. You can love, you can be an ally of Imam Ali alayhi salam. You can be a follower of his followers. But if you want to be a follower of Imam Ali alayhi salam, the standards are always very high. There's work to do. And so when we look at our community, we have to do the same thing. And when we say our community, by the way, I don't mean this specific one. I mean all of our communities. Anyone, anywhere, wherever we may be, today, in the future, how we look at our communities, how we think about our communities, how we plan, how we contribute, 
What are we doing to help move things in this direction? So that at the end, everyone in our community falls in this category. The category of being a learner on the path of deliverance. Everyone has to have a place here. The Imam would not be saying this as if this is not possible. Right? So we have to start in this way. This is the community of knowledge. There are actions that have to be taken. There's awareness, there's planning, organizing, so that we move together as a community in this direction. I'll stop here, inshallah, we continue from where we're leaving off. Next time we'll continue into the how and the practical aspects of these communities of knowledge.